0: First Christian Church of Chiefland brings you the good news, and now I'm sure. Well, as we continue our series on a portrait of Jesus, we're on part two today. We call him Lord, and that's we're going to find out quite a name to call Jesus. Before we get started, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this morning we're delighted to be able to be together once again and and to share in the Word of God. Lord, what an incredible book it is that you've put together. It's so alive and it teaches us so much. And Regardless, I believe, Lord, no matter how often we read it, no, how, no matter how long we are in this life, and, and we read through this book, we learn new things all the time. It just goes to show... It's such a living book and and how much we grow in your your kingdom as we learn more and more about the Word of God and who you are. You allow our character to grow more and more. So I pray today as we learn more about Jesus and why we call him Lord, as we paint this picture, this portrait of Jesus, uh, may we understand the importance of that Word to us and to you. For this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Shakespeare asked the question, what's in a name? And if I could answer him, I would tell him that a name is far more than a mere title or label. I would tell him that a name describes the very essence of a person. This is why wise are the parents who give careful thought and consideration to the selection of the name which their child will bear for a lifetime. Now I'm sure you and I have all heard some names that have been given to children, and we've all thought that poor child. What will it be like for them when they grow up? There was a time in my childhood I hated my name. Tommy is my given name. And whenever the first day of school came, I hated my name. Because the teacher would say, You know, they're putting you in your, your desk, teacher would say, Tommy? And then you'd hear some kids say, Tommy! (laughs) Right. And as I got older, the teacher would say, if you don't like your name and you want a different name, just tell me and I'll write that down. They'd say, Tommy, and I'd say, Tom, please. Tom. Forget the my part. But then I grew into a man and I realized, Tommy's not such a bad name. There are a lot of great individuals who had the name Tommy, so I realized, maybe it's not so bad. Goethe put it like this. A man's name is not like a mantle which merely hangs around him, but a perfectly fitting garment which, like the skin, has grown over him and which one cannot rake and scrape without injuring the man himself. In Anglo-Saxon tradition, names have historically been assigned rather than Rather logically. For example, ancestral heritage often resulted in family names such as Johnson or Peterson or Robertson. You were the son of Robert. You were the son of John. You were the son of Peter. Often one's occupation became the identifying label: Miller or Smith or Farmer. Religious heritage is another factor. Most of us know at least one woman named Joy or Hope or Faith, don't we? Or how about a man named David or Peter or Paul? Those who bear such names move through life with a daily reminder of their Christian heritage. I remember watching a movie some years back. That was a fun movie I enjoyed watching it called The Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. I'm sure some of you have seen that movie. But the seven brothers all had, quote-unquote, Bible names. And they, the uh, dad's idea was all his sons had to go by the alphabet, A, B, C. Mom's idea was they had to go by uh, Bible names. So, obviously, Adam was the first one, then Benjamin, then Caleb, then Daniel, then Ephraim. And they got to F. Jump F, go to G. Gideon was the youngest. Well, what do you do for F? Guess what? There are no good Bible names for F. So good dear old mom called him Frankincense. And all his brother said, it's because he smelled so pretty. Frank for short. You know, the names meant something, didn't they? I always wanted a son and name him Zerubbabel. <laughs> That's a great Bible name. Nobody makes a boys Zerubbabel anymore. Or Zarephath. There's another good one. Now, it may interest you to know that God has also placed high value on the careful selection and use of names. In fact, such has been the case from the beginning. Remember what happened in creation? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But God's creative energy was not limited to mere construction of the heaven and the earth. He also named them. For example, when God made light, he called the light day. The darkness, he called night. When he made the expanse, which would be separate the waters, God called the expanse sky. When he gathered the waters, he called the dry ground land. Gathered waters, he called seas. I could go on and on, but I won't. Except to say that on the final day of creation, God created a human being, and he called the human being... Adam, which means man. And then God put the man into a garden and gave him two assignments. The first assignment was to cultivate and care for the land. It says in Genesis two fifteen, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Job number one. His second assignment. Now the Lord God had formed out the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. Wouldn't that be a blast, really? Here comes this, this creature. It's yellow, has brown spots, and a really long neck. And I think, Adam's standing there and thinking, hmm. Golly. How about giraffe? And then next one come along with this gray-looking beast with really big ears and this big long nose that kind of you know way down there to the ground. And he probably looked at that one and said, "That was a big one." How about elephant? <laughs> then he saw this little critter come along, with four, four feet, four legs, and all said, Oh, compared to him, ah, little thing, dog. <laughs> really, what it be called to be given that job what would we have named all the different animals goes to show man was no caveman. man stupid when he was made he was in full intelligence but Adam could not find a creature comparable to him you think about all those creatures coming in Adam finally says hey you know I didn't see a single one that looked like me so the job was completed. But God put Adam to sleep, and later when Adam awoke, he saw standing before him another human being, slightly altered in design, but well, basically a human being. Adam was ecstatic, and he shouted, Well, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of our flesh." And he did what he had been doing with God's creatures, and he gave her a name. And he said, Whoa, man! So. Adam didn't have the problem that we have. Adam could say, woman, come here. That was okay. That was her name. Remember, God changed her name later on to Eve. But I don't know about you, but I get in trouble sometimes if I say, woman, come here. (laughs) Let's not even go there. (laughs) Do you find it intriguing that from the very beginning, God sought to describe the essence of a person or a thing by assigning to that person or thing a name. And each name was chosen for a very specific reason. And as the tradition of naming continued families would often name their children uh, after a specific event which had occurred on or about the time of the baby's birth. For instance, Isaac. Isaac means laughter. He got his name because Sarah laughed when she heard that at 90 years old she was going to give birth to a son. Moses. Moses received his name because it means to draw out of. He was drawn out of the Nile River by the Egyptian princess. And Hannah, she named her son Samuel. His name means heard by God because she had been praying and praying and praying to God for a son. And like some receive their name because of a change in either their character or assignment. For instance, Abram, which meant father of height, received the name Abraham father of multitudes, or father of many nations. Jacob, his name meant deceitful. It was changed to Israel, prince of God. And Sarai, means contentious, hers was changed to Sarah, which meant princess. Even in the New Testament, Simon was changed to Peter, Saul was changed to Paul. You know, names are important. And as interesting or uninteresting as all that may be, it is no exaggeration to say that all the names in history, not one compares to the beauty, the power, and the simplicity of the name Jesus. The truth is, Jesus has many names. Jesus is really one among many descriptive labels assigned to our Savior. In fact, one commentator has counted more than 700 descriptive names and titles for Jesus in Scripture. Now, before we go today, I want somebody to name all 700. Because I can't. <laughs> you know, I didn't count them myself, but certainly many names for Jesus have been revealed to us. And I think there's a reason. Personally, I believe that one of the best ways to really come to know Jesus and to understand Him is to paint a mental portrait of Him using only the mosaic of many of His names and titles which are assigned to Him in Scripture. What would your portrait of Jesus look like? A Sunday school teacher in a kindergarten class gave an assignment to do a drawing, and Timmy, well, who was six years old, he seriously began drawing his picture. And when the time uh, was almost up, he wasn't finished. And the teacher leaned over to Timmy's desk and said, What are you drawing, Timmy? And Jim, Timmy said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher wisely said, Well, Timmy, the Bible says that no man has ever seen God. Nobody knows what God looks like, Timmy. And Timmy, re- Timmy replied, They will when I'm finished. <laughs> now that's the ambition there. He's called by many names. Here's a few. Emmanuel, mighty, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, Jesus, also son of God, son of man, Messiah, good shepherd, savior, prophet, king, cornerstone, bridegroom, bread of life, light of the world, the gate, the lamb of God, the lion of Judah, the vine, the way, the truth, and the life the resurrection, the Alpha, the Omega, the hope of glory, the Holy One, the Great I Am, and Lord! Ooh. He has some cool names, doesn't he? One of my personal favorites is the Lion of Judah. That sounds strong, doesn't it? Yet he's also called the Lamb of God. What a contrast now you ask yourself, why so many names? I think it's because one name could never fully capture him. You see, a name, although descriptive, is also restrictive. To only call Jesus the Lamb of God restricts our view of him because the Lamb is also the Lion of Judah. The servant of God was also the ruler of man. And in the very real sense, Jesus is unnameable. His glory and his dominion defy Description. John Godfrey Sachs wrote a piece called The Blind Man and the Elephant. Now, listen to this interesting piece that he wrote. It was six men of Industin, to learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant and happened to fall against his broad and sturdy side, and at once began to bawl. God bless me, the elephant is very like a wall. The second, feeling the tusk, cried, Oh, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp, to me it's mighty clear, this wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal and happened to take the squirming trunk within his hands, thus boldly up and spake. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. And the fourth reached out an eager hand and felt about the knee. What most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, quoth he. Tis clear enough, the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth, who chanced to touch the ear, said even the blindest man can tell what this resembles most, deny the fact who can. This marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope. I see, quoth he, the elephant, is very like a rope. And so these men of Industin disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly right and all were in the wrong. You get the point? If your mental portrait of Jesus includes only a few of your favorite names, if you only allow those brush strokes which speak of his love and mercy and grace, and if you fail to include the truth and his judgment and his wrath, then your portrait of him will be entirely inaccurate. And all Jesus' names are required if your portrait of him is to be accurate and true. It seems the more a person was with Jesus, the more he, his name changed. For example, in John 4, Jesus meets the woman at the well. And she greets him by calling him Sir. She was probably from the South. And at that moment, he was nothing more to her than just another man. But as he talked with her about her life, she came to say, I perceive that you are a prophet. And later she explained to her friends in town folk, could this man be the Messiah? And what a change. He went from sir to prophet to Messiah in less than 30 verses. John 9. Jesus heals a man who had been born blind. Later, his neighbors asked him about the man who had healed him. He said, The man they called Jesus healed me. And because the Pharisees were not, uh, did not get along with Jesus, they wanted to, and he, because he had healed on the Sabbath, they called the man into court. What do you have to say about this man who healed you? Now he's had some time to think about it. Nobody else, including the Pharisees, could heal him. Only the man called Jesus. So having thought it through, he now says, He's a prophet. And they say, There's no way around it, guys. He's different, different than the rest of us. What did you say? The Pharisees were furious. They say, Give glory to God. He just did. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He, the man who had been blind, therefore answered, Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that whereas I was blind, now I see. And the Pharisees threw him out of the courtroom. And when Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man. And it says in John chapter 9, verse 35. Trust me, I have it in here. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and when he had found him. He said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? And he answered said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? There's two names. Three names you count, Jesus. And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. He worshipped him. Lord! And that's what we call Him too. We call Him Lord. Without a question, the most common title used to address Jesus after His resurrection is Lord. And we read in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. You hear that? God has exalted him and given him the name above every name. That is the name of Jesus, that every knee should bow, those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord. So what do we mean when we call him Lord. The Greek word translated Lord is kurios. You see, Lord means ruler, ownership, and authority. Jesus is Lord. And the three reasons why we call Jesus Lord, number one, we freely admit that he is alone our ruler. He alone is our ruler. We acknowledge his power and His alone can span beyond the confines of the grave. Not only He can save. Not only He can forgive. Not Caesar. Not the Pope. Not any earthy ruler. No one but Jesus the Lord. It says in Acts chapter 4 verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It was this very point which brought the church into direct conflict with Rome. You see, the later Roman Empire or emperors began to view themselves as gods, little g. So that ultimately, every Roman citizen was required to come before the emperor, burn some incense, bow the knee, and say, "Caesar is curios is lord." That is something the Christians just could not do. They could not take the highest name of Jesus and speak it of anyone else, not even Caesar. And to those early Christians, Jesus was Lord, and no one and nothing would ever make that say otherwise. So thousands of Christians died. Some by the cross, others by flames, still others in the arena. They died because that name above every name belongs to Jesus, and to Jesus alone, because Jesus alone is, is the ruler. Now, let me ask you, why is that a problem? Why is that a problem? Sure, we may not call Caesar Lord, or we might not call the president Lord, but we as a people are in danger of calling someone else Lord. What? Who? That person is self. That person is self. You see, Jesus... As Lord means he is ruler of all things in our life. Period. We can run into problems when we don't give Jesus this rulership. When we try to do it our way instead of his way. And boy, has man gotten himself in trouble over the years trying to do it his way instead of God's way. Boy, I could preach all week on that topic and not even skim the surface. Do you or I know the way to heaven without Jesus? Raise your hand. You can get to heaven without Jesus. Well, that was like our vote earlier on whether we should have a yard sale or not. Unanimously, everybody agrees here that we go to heaven through Jesus. You see, Jesus, it says, is the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through Jesus see, we call Jesus Lord because when we call Jesus Lord, we freely admit that he alone is ruler. When we call Jesus Lord, we willingly bow to his ownership. His ownership. If he's Lord, he is. He Lord. It's not simple. He owns us. He bought us with a price. Think it through. Not only did he create me, he has redeemed me. Not only do I owe him my very existence, but also my hope for eternity. I wouldn't be alive if it weren't for Jesus. I won't know eternal life apart from him either. So when I call him Lord, I'm acknowledging his right to be in complete charge of my life. Think about that. In James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15, James wrote, Come now. You who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then you vanish away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills we will live and also do this or that. I want you to envision a candle sitting on the table and it's lit. A little flame coming out, and I go, and the flame disappears. And all you have coming from the candle is a little stream of smoke. James said, that's our life. It's here, and it's gone. It's but a vapor. But... When we have Jesus as our Lord, that doesn't bother us. Shouldn't that vapor doesn't bother me? I'm going to let you in on a secret. Few people know this. Chances are really good that you and I will die. Let you in on that little secret. Keep it to yourself. Most people don't realize that. My point is this. Christians need not fear that day. That's graduation day. How do you feel when you graduate from high school, college, wherever you graduated from? How do you feel? Oh, man, graduating. I can't believe it. No, you're throwing your hat around. You're waving your graduation certificate your diploma, you were relieved. <laughs> I did it. Yeah, did. they said I couldn't do it, but I got the paper and proved it. You know, as Christians, when we go, that's graduation day. We're going home. We're going to get to see Jesus. He's going to be waiting there for us. He's going to give us the biggest hug we ever had. I don't know how long it will take me. You know, and the cool thing is, in heaven, there's no time. So then I got, I can hold on to Jesus, baby, as long as I want, a thousand years. And he'll say, "Okay, you can let me go now." Oh no, I've, I've only done it a thousand years. Think about it. We're going to be in eternity in heaven. We're going to be whole for an eternity. For a Christian, I think of that flame <laughs> gone, that vapor. That's eternity. There that with me. It's just starting. I'm going to be there forever. Just the beginning, the first thousand years, This should have vapor food. <laughs> now i got a whole long time to go. That should excite us as Christians. Death should not, we should not fear death. Because we have Jesus. We say he's our owner. A.W. Tozer wrote these words. How can we live lives acceptable to God? The answer is near you, even in your mouth. Vacate the throne room of your heart and enthrone Jesus there. Set Him in the focus of your heart's attention and stop wanting to be a hero. Make Him your all-in-all all and try yourself to become less and less. Dedicate your entire life to His honor alone and shift the motives of your life from self to God. Let the reason back of your daily conduct be Christ and His glory. Not yourself, not your family, nor your country, nor your church. In all things, let Him have the preeminent. Did you get that? As Lord, he demands preeminence, not prominence. A lot of people are willing to let Jesus be prominent in their lives, but that won't cut it. He won't settle for being just a priority either. He demands preeminence. And considering who he is and what he has done and considering who we are and what we have done, the only imaginable relationship between us is the full ownership on his part and complete submission on our part. And we owe him every honor we can muster. To give him anything less is not calling Jesus Lord. Someone has said, if he's not Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. And in Philippians chapter 2, as I read earlier, verses 10 and 11, that the name of Jesus is every knee should bow of those on the, in the heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christians, that's going to be easy for us. We're going to be looking forward to bowing the knee and stating with our tongue that Jesus is Lord. But how about those who won't accept Jesus as Lord on this earth? And they have to go and stand in His presence on Judgment Day. If you didn't want to bow the knee here, you will surely bow the knee there. Because you might think, I'm too tough for that. They're going to make me. Go ahead. They're going to make you. And I don't want to look in the eyes of the angel that's going to be standing there making you. Because I don't think it'll be a pretty picture. But when we call Jesus Lord, we willingly balance His ownership. And then finally, when we call Jesus our Lord, we openly affirm His ultimate authority. It says in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What does that mean, practically speaking? It means that there is nothing in this world that he, in his awesome power, cannot handle. Nothing. Isn't that wonderful? In Matthew 19, 23 through 26, it says Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of God, excuse me. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking at that, Jesus said to them, With people it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now before I move on, let me just quickly explain what what Jesus was saying there. You see, He said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Well, it's the same things written in the book of Luke. Same words. And Luke, being a physician, could understand this. But some are saying, God, he's saying that a needle, you all know what a needle is, it has that eye on it, it'd be easier for that camel to pass through the eye of that needle than for a rich man to go to heaven. Guess what? A rich man is not willing to give up all he has to give his ownership to Jesus and authority to Jesus. And it'd be easier for that cattle to go through that needle's eye. Or the other possibility is they had a small door in the gate in Jerusalem and for a camel to go through that door, he'd have to get down on his knees. Guess what? A camel can't walk on his knees. The camel would have to get down on his knees to go through the door. Guess what the door was called? The eye of the needle. And it would be easier for that camel to go through the eye of the needle than it would be ever for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Impossible. But Jesus said, with God all things are possible. Because he spoke the world into existence because he bridged the gap between man and God, because he conquered death itself, there's nothing else that could ever trip him up. He possesses all authority. There's no temptation he can't handle. No disappointment, no past failure, no pain, no worry, no sin, no disease that will ever prove too much for him. Why? Because he is Lord. And he can bring peace in the midst of chaos and conflict, joy in the midst of heartache, stability in the midst of temptation. He can bring hope to those who are in despair, meaning to those who are empty, companionship to those who are lonely, pardon for those trapped in sin. He is Lord. And truly He is from everlasting to everlasting. He has no match in heaven or on earth. He entertains no fear, has no ignorance, has no needs. There's nothing that can limit him. He never makes a mistake. He always does that which is right. He possesses the power to bring everything to his perfect conclusion and according to his ultimate goal. He is invincible, immutable, infinite, and self-sufficient. His judgments are unsearchable. His ways unfathomable. He guides. He does not guess. He controls. He does not hope. He directs. He does not wish. Why? Because he is Lord. And he alone deserves our highest praise, our constant devotion, our daily obedience, and our willing heart. And once again, quote A.W. Tozer, he says that people who are crucified with Christ have three distinct marks. Number one, they are facing only one direction. Two, they can never turn back. And three, they no longer have plans of their own. And we read in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 7, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, but he who has died is freed from sin. You see, that's what it means to call Jesus Lord. We are crucified with Him, and we live with Jesus. And if you have not yet given your life to Jesus, called Him your Lord, what are you waiting for? Really? I would preach Jesus to you today. Just like I'm supposed to just like the disciples did on the day of Pentecost, since they preached Jesus to them, just like Paul did to the Gentiles, just like Peter did in Acts chapter ten to Cornelius and his household, preached Jesus to them. Philip preached Jesus to the Ethiopian eunuch, and it's simple. You want Jesus as the Lord. It starts by faith, that you believe who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God, and he, you want him to be Lord of your life. He is your Savior. That faith leads you to repent. That means you'll turn from your sinful life, want to follow Jesus' ways. Faith leads you to confess the name of Jesus. Confess that he is Lord of your life. Faith leads you to be immersed, baptized in the watering grave of baptism, to be raised to walk without your sins, because in baptism your sins are washed away and God fills you with the Holy Spirit, as I read there in Romans chapter 6. And then faith leads you to want to walk in your way, in your ways on this earth, in the ways of Jesus. Pretty simple. But it all starts with you accepting Jesus as Lord.